Welcome to University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrick. As the pandemic took hold in New Mexico in April 2020, Dr. Heather Gerald stepped into a new role, Interim Chief Medical Examiner at the Office of the Medical Investigator. The OMI was created by the state legislature in 1972 to replace all the county coroners around the state with a statewide medical examiner system. The staff investigate all reportable deaths to determine their cause and provide families with a death certification. The office is a program within the Department of Pathology at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine. Dr. Gerald first came here in 2014, and in January this year, she was made the permanent chief medical examiner. The OMI staff are used to working in difficult situations, but the coronavirus pandemic presented a whole new array of challenges, especially with the office being short-staffed. Our faculty were down to about five pathologists at that time, and to be fully staffed, OMI requires nine. So here we are uh, with about half the number of staff, a uh, faculty that we need to be able to perform our state-mandated duties in the face of a novel influenza-like pandemic. Thankfully, we were able to face that challenge pretty readily just by the very nature of being what we call a BSL-3 or a biosafety level 3 lab. And we were already demonstrating the personal protective equipment that you should be wearing in a COVID-19 type um, autopsy. We were already doing that on a day-to-day basis. So thankfully, we didn't have to prepare ourselves in that way. We did have some difficulties with N95s, um, which is the respirator that we normally wore before the pandemic began. And when the pandemic hit, everyone was scrambling for N95s because they had not needed them in that capacity before. Uh, So we did have to look for other PPE or personal protective equipment and were able to, to utilize the hoods, which were what we call the PAPR, purified air powered respirators, and that we're able to wear those. And so we've been wearing those ever since the pandemic started. And did you have to autopsy all the suspected COVID cases? How did that work? We started out um, autopsying cases that fell within our jurisdiction uh, with regard to COVID. What that means is if someone had a potential COVID contact uh, before their death, or they were displaying COVID symptoms or potential COVID symptoms, such as fever, shortness of breath and cough, and then some of the other less common symptoms were also considered. If those people died at home and not in a hospital, then we brought them in and did an autopsy. In terms of being ready to go with the kind of equipment you needed and protection, why did the OMI, the Office of the Medical Investigator, already have that in place? Back in the early 1990s, the hantavirus uh, outbreak happened in New Mexico. And that really brought the medical examiner office to the forefront of emerging infectious disease. And people had never really thought about how medical examiners play a role in that and how essential they are in emerging infectious disease. And in this case, in the uh, coronavirus um, pandemic outbreak. And so since that time, the office shifted over into a biosafety level three. And I don't recall what year uh, we became a biosafety level three, but for the OMI, at least it's here to stay. 
And at one point, I believe there were up to 10 refrigerator trucks outside your offices on the UNM campus. What was that like coming into work every day and seeing that? It's a bit daunting. And I think it really, I I remember seeing some posts that people not affiliated with the OMI had posted. People would show me a post that they had seen on social media that, oh, oh my goodness, there's refrigerated trucks at the OMI and really kind of hitting home with those people who had posted that, that and they actually use that to, to market the importance of getting vaccinated. And so at least they were using that in a, in a positive way to encourage people to get vaccinated. The Office of the Medical Investigator routinely sees traumatic deaths. How was COVID different? Was it very different for you and your staff? There wasn't a lot known about the virus when it really started hitting New Mexico and the rest of the country as well. We were cautious. We exercised all of our normal precautions. And it was a little, I would say that it's always present in the back of your mind. And, you know, oh my gosh, I took my hood off. But when I took my hood off, did that part of my hood brush against my face? Did I take my PPE off appropriately? Because we all know that's the time when we, as medical examiners and autopsy technicians and so on, are most at risk when we're removing it. Uh, I remember being in isolation, and even though we're at biosafety level three, we started out in the pandemic doing all of those autopsies for potential COVID in our additional isolation room, which is another buffer, another layer of protection. And I remember in the middle of one of my autopsies, my tech's respirator, the PAPR, which pumps air up into the hood, her PAPR turned off in the middle of the Mm. autopsy. And she looked at me and she said, what do I do? And I said, get out, get out. We'll take your PAPR off and change. And so she was fine. We, We got her checked out. We called the proper folks who we needed to talk to and just assured her she was still fine. But there's that moment and you kind of feel like you're in the, uh, one of those movies like Outbreak because you're in the full, what we call the bunny suits. You're in those full PPE from head to toe with a novel pandemic virus. So for a moment, it was kind of like being in that you know, Outbreak movie for a second until you realize you're okay. Just don't let fear take over. Use your scientific rationale. You're fine. Yeah, I, I can imagine that would be quite, especially with such so much was unknown for so long about the virus. Right now, currently, the number of deaths related to COVID in the state is just over 4,300. Does that mean you all had to autopsy all of those? No, most people who pass away, we found were, were passing away in the hospital. So if they died in the hospital... That's not necessarily something that would go to the office of the medical investigator. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Those were not coming. Um, we were available for consults if a family wanted that, but I can't recall a, a case where um, a family wanted an autopsy. Since the pandemic started, we've done uh, about 1,080 COVID tests. Given that you were already short-staffed, how did you and your staff handle this? I imagine at times you were pretty overwhelmed. We were. We were. And they just, I, I really just have to commend the staff and the faculty. 
they just get the job done. They really don't complain. We're all going in doing more cases than we should be doing. And they've just realized this is what needs to be done. And they're keeping the, our, our mission that we're actually helping uh, families and we're actually serving the living by doing this. And they just got the work done. And it's really a remarkable group of folks that we have here. The OMI faculty are currently, uh, with the exception of Dr. Zumwalt, who's our 0.25 working retiree. We're all women forensic pathologists. Most of us have young kids and we're working on cases until uh, sometimes 1130 at night, just trying to clear those cases out because we realize that getting the death certificate issued is a huge deal for the families. It really impacts them financially and emotionally if it's late. It still takes us a, a couple months, for most of us, about three months to get that done. And we're just putting in the extra hours and getting it done. So it's really a remarkable group of folks here. You're all women. How unusual is that? It seems to be trending that way. And I don't think there's ever been a time in OMI's history where we've all been women. And so one of our residents actually commented, he wants to go into forensics and he, he wants to do his forensics fellowship at OMI. And he actually wants to stay on at OMI when he's done. And probably the best compliment that I um, could have gotten from him was that this office is run by amazing women. And historically, the forensics has been dominated by men. He said, I want to come here because it's a well-known office with a very good reputation and it's run exclusively by women right now. And so that was actually a, a huge compliment. This is University Showcase on KUNM. I'm Megan Kamrick, and I'm speaking with Dr. Heather Gerald. She is the Chief Medical Examiner with the Office of the Medical Investigator. The office investigates all reportable deaths around the state, and it's part of the Department of Pathology in the UNM School of Medicine. What was your own path to forensic pathology? Why did you want to do this? My dad was a, a state trooper in Georgia, and I always had this interest in not necessarily even law enforcement. I was always strong in science. I loved biology. I loved anatomy. And I remember that a family friend had given me a forensic book with real life forensic cases. And I read the book from start to finish, gave it back to her. And I realized, I want to read that again. Can you bring that back? How so old she, were you? I was in high school. I was in the 10th grade, and uh, so she brought it back. I read it again, and I thought, that's what I'm going to do. So then I started, you know, as a lot of people do, started watching the forensic files shows, and Dr. G, medical examiner, who was actually, you know, a real-life medical examiner who we see at our medical examiner meetings back when we could go to them in person, it just stuck there. What was it, solving puzzles, or, you know, what was the attraction? It, it is. It is essentially solving a puzzle, and sometimes you can't. There's just not enough information. But for those cases to, to really try to figure out why someone died, and, and it isn't always obvious, and sometimes you have to get from A to E or you know, even further down the alphabet to get to the answer, and just working through that is challenging, and it's rewarding when you're able to figure it out. Okay, I'm going to date myself by saying I grew up watching Quincy. I didn't realize there are these other shows that you mentioned. And I'm wondering if the proliferation of more of 
sort of your work in those kind of public spheres? Has that fostered more interest in the field? Has it fostered unrealistic expectations maybe by victims' families or things like that, sort of like CSI has? Well, we definitely do see that. Uh, I think, especially in, in Port in New Mexico and in people who are more involved in forensics and more involved with the OMI in New Mexico have an understanding that you don't get DNA back within the next day. Toxicology isn't the same day. And so, but it does foster this rumor that we can get things done remarkably quickly. The turnaround time for DNA, depending on which lab you use, is about a year. So it's, it's oh my gosh. So yeah, I I do. I I don't watch these TV shows that much anymore because this is my life now. So I have to go home to my kids and watch Moana and Frozen and things like that now. But when I do see these TV shows, it is laughable that, gosh, they could have consulted a forensic pathologist, but I get it. It makes a better story if they get the DNA back in a day. The role of the office of the medical uh, investigator, it's not just doing autopsies. You're also, you offer consultation on things like criminal cases around DNA, that kind of evidence. Not, not so much. We do our state jurisdiction cases. Um, we do consultation for families and for hospitals in the state. I actually was running a forensic neuropathology consultation service, and I just had to suspend it because being short-staffed and being chief, it was a bit much at the moment. Usually when we you know, send evidence, what we call evidence off, um, the state crime lab is the one who interprets that. You were working in the OMI before you became the chief, right? How long were you there? Right. I came to the OMI uh, out of fellowship from Virginia, and that was in August of 2014. And then in April 1st, I became interim chief. So a pretty short time period from the time that I got out of fellowship and the time that I became OMI chief. Uh, it was it's kind of it's a reflection upon how short staff we are across the country in forensics. Historically, the OMI chief has been someone who's got 20 years under their belt. And so now we're seeing across the country that uh, there's younger chiefs in bigger cities. In fact, the chief who was just named in San Francisco, I actually just trained him a few years ago. And so we're seeing younger and younger chiefs across the country. Why is there such a problem with not having enough forensic pathologists here and around the country? Well, if you think about how many residency spots there are across the country. So just for people who are listening who don't know the progression, you go to medical school, graduate from medical school, and then choose a, a specialty, internal medicine, emergency medicine, pathology, so on. There's about 34,000 residency positions across the United States. Out of 34,000, only about 600 will go into pathology. Hmm. And then out of that 600 who go into pathology, anywhere between 35 and usually about 45 will go into forensics each year. So we're getting a very small bite, less than 1% of the total people who are out there seeking something. And maybe it's because when you go through medical school, you're not doing a forensics rotation. Uh, a lot of people don't even get any exposure to pathology at all. So they're out there for the exciting fields like 
you know, orthopedic surgery and emergency medicine and, and so on. And so that's what they're getting exposed to in medical school. What does it take to become a forensic pathologist? Are the training requirements very rigorous? So you go to medical school for four years, graduate from medical school, and then choose a residency in pathology. That's a a four-year residency program. And then you have to go on and do a forensic pathology fellowship, which is one year. Mm. So it's, it's a long time. How are you trying to get more young people interested in the field? Well, thankfully, uh, and recently, I'm not sure if it has to do with the pandemic at all, but gotten a a lot of high school teachers reaching out to us that, hey, we've got some students um, and in high school, they have some forensic pathology programs. I'm not sure how long that's existed. It seems to be a a newer involvement, which is really exciting. We, you know, actually have two high school students. I had a teacher reach out to me. have two high school students. One is interested in forensic pathology. The other is interested in forensic anthropology. Can you come by and talk to us or can they come to the OMI? So that's actually really exciting. And from a medical examiner perspective and someone who's been practicing in the field for a few years, we tend to get bogged down and you really have to guard yourself against burnout when you're so busy. Um, To get to talk to someone who's at the very beginning, you see a little bit of yourself in them and it allows you to get re-energized again. And so for us, it's actually a a pick-me-up to go talk to someone else. If you just tuned in, this is University Showcase on KUNM, and I'm Megan Kamrick. My guest is Dr. Heather Gerald. She is the Chief Medical Examiner with the Office of the Medical Investigator, a role she stepped into at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic in April 2020. The office investigates all reportable deaths in New Mexico and sometimes even takes on specialized work coming in from other states. You also specialize, I gather, in autopsies where prion disease is expected. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I also, in addition to forensics, I did a neuropathology fellowship. That's a two-year fellowship, and I did that at the University of Virginia. Not every place that does autopsies can do prion disease. Those are infectious proteins. If you say CJD, most people don't know what that is, but when once you say mad cow disease, everybody knows. Um, So we don't really have mad cow disease here in the United States, but we have cases like CJD, which is Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Most of those are sporadic. For whatever reason, your brain has a protein that changes its conformation. It changes its shape into this shape that's now infectious. And so that protein that's changed its shape influences your other proteins to change shape. And it just propagates down this line. It doesn't happen overnight. Probably takes a long time for that to happen. You know, 30 years or so. And so we do those autopsies here. We, I do put on the full bunny outfit I'm covered from head to toe. It's just me and an autopsy, actually two techs in the room have a clean tech and the tech who's actually doing the procedure. And there's a special procedure for doing those. We cover the head with this plastic tarp. And the reason we do all this is because nobody really knows what happens when you put a saw on the skull and you enter into the cranial cavity and now you're sending those particles into the air. You don't really want to breathe that. Nobody really knows what happens. So once the tech's done that, then then I remove the brain and we ship it off to the National Prion Disease Pathology Surveillance Center in Cleveland, Ohio. 
when we have new techs who are getting trained on prion disease type autopsies, they're always a little bit nervous. And I just always tell them, yes, there's a protocol, but you can do this. It's not any different than any other case. I've been doing them ever since since neuropathology fellowship. I would guess I've probably done 50 or so of those types. I gather then, since there are probably not a ton of cases necessarily in New Mexico, these are coming from other states. Why are they coming here? Is it because of the specifics you have in the lab? Is it because of your expertise or both? I've been told by the Prion Center that I'm the only person who does these cases between Dallas and L.A., And so if they have a a suspected case and they need someone to do that autopsy, then they'll have the body brought to OMI. We don't get them that often. Uh, It's usually, you know, three or four a year, but I handle those when they come in. How does your office work with families and loved ones who died? That's another part of your job. Yes. And I really want to highlight this group of people within the OMI. We have a grief team. And not all medical examiners' offices have that. And they are actually remarkable. I've learned so much about how to even talk to families about certain situations just from being in a room with them when they were present. Um, So we do have our grief team to help. And we haven't met with families as much throughout the pandemic because we had to close down to the public, but, um, and that's now opening back up on a limited basis. But it's been in-person meetings if we need to, um, phone calls, and just trying to answer questions. Our administrative assistants also really deserve some applause because they handle a lot of tough questions from family members. They're very good at trying to pick out the details of what the family actually needs and what questions the family really needs to have answered, and then they bring that to us. And so... It's a multi-team member effort just to try to communicate effectively with the family. And I should say those grief services are open to anyone who's lost a loved one to but a violent end. So that means it could be murder. It could be suicide. It could be something else, right? Yes. Yes. And now that the pandemic is, the, the numbers are coming back down, we're going to see people get vaccinated, then our grief services are actually doing um, on-site visits. So the family doesn't have to drive all the way to Albuquerque to meet with them anymore. Um, so the legislature, the, there were actually some state appropriations that were for grief and just for, and for that purpose to be able to travel to where these families are and meet with them. And so that's huge. And given how large New Mexico is and the fact that other states don't have this, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, that's impressive. How do you personally deal with having what can be a pretty traumatic and um, intensive job? Well, it's, it's challenging. We all have the, the faculty, all the forensic pathologists each have types of deaths that we can identify that are really challenging for us. And the, the great thing here is knowing what those are for other people as well. And knowing that if that type of death is on what we call our docket for that day and then we reach out to the attending, you know, I can do this autopsy for you today because I know that no one should have to do an autopsy on a child. If you have a child that's the same age as that child, it's just too personal. It's too close to home. The culture has really changed 
in the past from you just have to be tough. You just have to do this and because you're on and you're expected to do that. We all realize now that we're human and that if I can't concentrate because I'm crying because the you know child looks like my child, I'm not doing this child any favors. I'm not doing this child's family any favors by forcing myself to do that. And so the culture has really changed and it needed to happen. Some papers have been published that have shown that about 60% of forensic pathologists are still practicing after I think it was six years. Why do we have such significant burnout? What are we doing? And so there is now a, a huge culture shift for taking care of you um, as a person and, you know, realizing this is a case that I shouldn't do. So I'm going to ask my colleague to help out with this one. That's huge. Oh, that's interesting. So you're seeing this shift across the country in response to these high burnout levels. Yes. I've actually had a person who was finishing their pathology residency reach out to me and say, Hey, I, I really worry about, you know, autopsy and kids, my own kids age. And she was going to a different forensic pathology program and she just asked for advice. So I was able to give her some advice on, you know, this is how you talk to your program about this. And so there is a big shift, which is, is good to see because we have to look at why are forensic pathologists burning out so fast? Mm. Something has to change. I'm glad to hear that. I hope you guys can be an example to the medical field and medical education across the country. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we try. And, and I'll say I've read some articles um, for other, it, actually one of my best friends from medical school was being uh, interviewed and she just talked about, you know, pandemic fatigue. Um, she doesn't practice in this state. She, she's an emergency medicine physician in another state. And for me, at least it was, you know, somewhat comforting in a, in a weird way to see well, forensic pathologists aren't the only ones with this pandemic fatigue and burnout and that my colleagues in other departments and other specialties are equally fatigued as well. Well, Dr. Heather Gerald, this has been really interesting. Thank you. Is there anything else you wanted to add I didn't bring up? I don't think so. Thank you so much. I just, I appreciate you reaching out and, and highlighting the OMI. You know, we have a lot of excellent people here who just have this, um, never-ending energy supply. And when you see them, they have a smile on their face and they know they're helping people. And they've been at the OMI for years, some of them for decades, and really just admire the strength and the, just the willingness to serve others. I don't think people would have guessed that just from the outside, knowing what you do. Right. So that's fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. That was Dr. Heather Gerald. She is the chief medical examiner in the Office of the Medical Investigator. You can find more information on their grief support services at our website, KUNM.org. That's also where you can find this interview and all our interviews. Thanks to Associate Professor David Bashwinner for our theme music. I'm Megan Kamrick. Thanks for listening to University Showcase.